Syzygy, episode 90, Touching the Sun. And welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy podcast, quite possibly the final Syzygy podcast for the year 2021, which is exciting and weird and and time's just doing very strange stuff. Joining me, not across the table in her office, as we've grown accustomed to once again, but across the other side of the country, Emily Brunsden. Emily, where are you? What's going on? Yeah, so I've uh, winged myself across the Pennines. I mean, by wind, I mean there were four wheels, uh, four wheels involved, and the M62, of course. Yeah, you didn't fly across; you just drove, which is no. the much more sensible way to do it in these times of COVIDness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we are all just working from home, as uh, the good Omicron variant tells us we should do. Indeed, it does feel a little bit sort of deja vu-esque, doesn't it, to this time last year. But let's not talk about that. Let's not dwell on that. There's so many other cool things, particularly as like we're getting really excited here in Syzygy HQ for the launch of a certain space telescope. Emily, this was supposed to happen on my birthday. I was promised a birthday present a couple of days ago on the 18th that the James Webb Space Telescope or the just wonderful space telescope, depending on who you ask, um, was just was supposed to launch, and and that didn't happen. Why? What's going on? Well, I think it just needed another five more minutes in bed. <laughs> just needed to sort of yeah have a little bit more of a stretch, maybe another cup of tea. Yeah, look, it was delayed from the eighteenth to the twenty second, and then oh, hang on, we've got it up in the spacecrafty bit, but we just we just need to make sure that this bit's working okay. And look, you know what? With something like the JWST. I'm fine with them taking just a bit more time to get it absolutely 100% right because we want this one to go well, right? Absolutely. It feels a bit like a fractal pattern, doesn't it? That we're used to having delays that were like two years, 18 months, six months, and now we're down to like two days, three hours, you know. Is this, it's, it's is this like a weird version of Zeno's paradox where, you know, the the, the time between delays is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter, but is either going to be an infinite amount of time or will add up to a finite amount of time. And I really hope it's the latter and not the former. <laughs> I hope that this is a this is a convergent series of, uh, of delays. So fingers crossed, it's supposed to be, um, I think it's somewhere around midday or just after midday UK time on Christmas Eve, the 24th of December tune in and watch this spacecraft take off with a really important telescope. Uh, just remind us very briefly, Emily, why are we so excited about this telescope? Well, I mean, it's only kind of like the biggest telescope we've ever launched since Hubble, pretty much, you know. Like biggest, biggest in concept and biggest in actual physical size as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, at least for optical telescopes. Um, well, we've actually, even our infrared telescopes haven't uh, haven't gotten this big. So, yeah, we're talking about biggest in terms of the mirror size, but hugely biggest in terms of the science expectations of what we're going to be able to do with this instrument. Yeah, it's going to be huge, but it also, you know, bigger also means more things can go wrong. Like There's a, there's a lot that could happen here, and, and everyone's been working really, really hard to make sure that this one goes to plan. Fingers crossed. If everyone listening could just keep everything crossed just for the next few days and then maybe a bit after that, after the launch, to make sure everything goes okay. And with any luck, in 2022, we'll actually get a bit of good news that it's all tickety-boo, everything's working as normal, and we have a new space telescope which is able to show us some awesome stuff. So come on, 
JWST, give us all the Christmas present that we in the astro nerd community so desperately desire. Fingers crossed. But look, that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today we're talking about a different kind of space probe, one which you've probably seen a few headlines uh, over the last couple of weeks, which is the Parker space probe. I've got that right, haven't I, Emily? It is Parker. And it's it's done something really kind of cool, which is it's touched the sun? What? Emily, what's going on? What are we talking about today? What's happened? And I guess we should probably also sort out fact from fiction. What hasn't happened? Have we actually touched the sun, Emily? Well, it depends on your definition of sun. And you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? Because that's always where <laughs> you want to start Everything off in astronomy definition. has an asterisk next to it, right? Everything has a little asterisk that says, well, depends on how you, how you define it. Yep, so... How do how are we going to define the sun today? What's happened? So we've had NASA's Parker Solar Probe, which was designed to go into the sun. Let's just make that clear. It's not an accident. We didn't just sort of yeah. go a little <laughs> bit off course and ended up in the sun. Uh, no, it is the solar probe. And it has actually confirmed that it has flown through the corona and sampled charged particles from the sun and its magnetic field as well. Right. So we've gone and we've gone... For the first time, we've gone into and through some of the, the sun's corona. So we should probably have a bit of a discussion about that. What does that mean? But we've never done this before. We've never, never got this close to our sun or indeed any other star. Emily, how are we going to unpack this? Should we start with, like, what what have we gone through? What is the sun's corona? Like, How big is it? How close have we got? Take us through this. Give us something to hang on to here. Well, I think we need to go all the way back to the very beginning to start with. Okay. And that is, of course, actually, what is the sun? Which would, it makes a good start, right? <laughs> Don't emphasize I think, like this. I think that's a really good place to start. I think we should start with that. Yep. Right. So the sun is a sort of a ball of plasma. And a plasma is the fourth state of matter, as it's colloquially known, where you've got charged particles sort of swimming around in the sort of soup. And it's all held together by its own self-gravity. So that's what makes it into a sphere. Now, the sun has an inside and an outside. And this is sort of, in some ways, arbitrarily defined. But um, as we'll see, this kind of, it's not a solid object because of this plasma. It's kind of got bits that are more dense and bits that are less dense. And there's physics that go behind that. But broadly, it is kind of this extended atmospheric thing right so it's not it's not quite like the earth in that you've got like there's clearly defined this is the surface of the earth you know this is the bit where it gets hard or, or wet depending on where you are but there's a fairly clearly defined surface there we do have an atmosphere as well but that's a lot thinner and particularly the further away you go the thinner it gets but there's definitely a surface to the earth can can we say that there's a surface to the sun does that does that exist? Is that a thing? We sort of do. We, what we call the surface of the sun is actually the photosphere. Uh, it's called the photosphere because photons come from the photosphere. So if you like, when you look at the sun, don't look at the sun. Don't when, do that. When you, when you use a safe solar telescope or other viewing device to look at the sun, the surface that you're looking at is the photosphere. Okay. And so when you see images of the sun, I mean, it, you know, you look at a picture of the sun that NASA's taken or something, the Solar Observatory, and it really does look like, like the, that's, a, that's a sphere, 
right? It, it does seem to have a really well-defined edge. So is, is that what you're talking about? That's the photosphere. Yeah. And, and so that really does seem like, like that's the edge of the sun right there. What's happening at that boundary to make it so well-defined? So this is where the visible light that we see kind of, it, it becomes opaque to that visible light beyond that boundary. So the photosphere itself has a depth that's kind of something like 300 kilometres thick. So that, um, over that kind of 300 kilometres, which is tiny, obviously, compared to the whole size of the sun, um, then that's where all the photons are coming from. And we can't see past that with our visible light. Now, if you had uh, X-ray um, sort of eyes or if you had radio eyes or other types of eyes, then you would see a different surface because those photons uh, hit a kind of a, you, you can't look any deeper, actually a lot sooner in both of those particular examples. So the sun actually looks a bit bigger in both of, both radio and X-rays. Right. So it, d it depends on how you're looking. So unlike the surface of the earth where there is this sort of watery, rocky, dirty surface that is fairly well-defined, the sun, it kind of depends on what wavelengths you're looking at as to where the surface seems to be. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we, we take, right. obviously, the kind of natural thing, which is to take our own optical light uh, as the standard, and this is where the photosphere comes from. Yeah, because we're a bit biased that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also, it's it's in some ways, it's the deepest layer that we can see through as well. So it's useful. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen in the photosphere. Uh, this is where our sunspots uh, are formed, for example, that you right. see lovely solar images. So it's it's a nice, useful example to take. Okay. So that's that's kind of the, the edge of the sun as we see it. So, you know, we've talked on podcasts before about what, what kind of happens down inside, but today we're sort of talking about what happens outside that. So can we sort of move out from that surface? What's happening out there? So then you have the solar atmosphere. So it's almost like we're pretending that inside the photosphere, the sun is like the inside of the earth and it's kind of, there's interior composition and that's fine, but we're kind of pretending that that's almost like a solid, that's, that's the sun. And then outside of that is the sun's atmosphere. And that atmosphere is made up of three different parts. Uh, so we've got an order going outwards, and we'll go into the detail of these three, but an order going outwards, we've got photosphere itself, then the chromosphere, then the corona. So photosphere, chromosphere, and then the corona. Right. And so corona we're going to come back to because that's that's the meat of it today because that's what the Parker Space Probe has actually been in, and touched you know, hung out in there for a while. So shall we work our way out then? Photosphere. Yeah, so this is the surface we were talking about. So imagine that the surface is kind of the bottom of this photosphere, if you like. That's where the deepest photons that we see come from. Right, and but that's a layer you were saying. That's, what did you say, about 300 Ks thick or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and we'll, I sort of messed around with units when I was trying to figure out how we wanted to go here. Um, in the end, I've gone with NASA's kind of way of describing things, which is to describe our distances in terms of the solar radius. All right, let's work with that. I can imagine now a disk, that's the sun, and I've got a radius. That's one, one solar radius unit. Does that have a name, by the way? Like the astronomical unit is the average distance out to the Earth's orbit, and that's one AU, and we use that a lot. Does solar radius, is that, is that a thing? 
Yeah, well, it's a thing in, in that we call it solar radius. We don't have a sort right, of fancy okay. name like Martin for it, but we just call it solar radius. <laughs> well, maybe we should. We'll call it Martins from now on. Okay. So <laughs> given that we, we started a radius of one Martin, uh, one solar radius, um, what is the radius of the sun? So it's about 700,000 kilometres. So 300 kilometres as the thickness of the photosphere. That's not much. It's less than a percent. Right. That's that's fairly small. Yeah. Okay. So and they, so that photosphere, 300 kilometres thick, and uh, we know this is what we call the surface temperature of the sun is somewhere around 5,700 Kelvin. Now, I'm working in temperatures of Kelvin here. If you prefer degrees Celsius, then you can just kind of subtract off 270, uh, 243 degrees if you want. Yeah, they're the, they're the same divisions, aren't they? It's the same size yeah. of a degree, whether you're talking Celsius or whether you're talking Kelvin. You just start in a different place. Kelvin starts at absolute zero and Celsius starts at what we call zero, which is which is where water melts. Um, but other than that, they're the same. And when you get up to sort of 5,700, look, it's hot it's by, anyone's, by anyone's measure. If right? you want to work in Fahrenheit, though, you're on your own here. I can't do that. Yeah, no. You subtract your grandmother's age and, and divide by nine and something. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so we're talking about 5,700 Kelvin as the temperature of the photosphere. So that was what we call broadly when we say the temperature of the sun, that's what we say the temperature of the sun is. Okay, so we start from there, working our way out. Yeah. Then we go out to the chromosphere. So the chromosphere is uh, actually a, quite a thin layer as well. So, you know, the, the photosphere is really thin. The chromosphere is only about 10 times thicker than that. Okay, so where we were 300, we're now talking in the order of several, a few thousand kilometres thick? Yeah, yeah, so up to maybe 5,000 at maximum. Right. Okay. And it's the chromosphere. And chroma means what? Colour? What's happening in the chromosphere? Why is it called that? Well, it's interesting. It's, a, it's actually a really lovely red colour. Now, the reason we don't tend to see this, um, so for example, if you are looking through solar viewing glasses or a solar telescope, is because it's much fainter compared to the rest of the uh, photosphere. So the photosphere completely washes it out. The only time you can see the chromosphere is if you, for example, are lucky enough to see a total solar eclipse. Yeah, you block out the really, really bright bit and you can see the bit that's not so bright that normally gets swamped by all the light from the sun itself. Mm. So if you look at some really nice total solar eclipse pictures, then you can see this really thin little red line, which is a kind of going around the outside of the shadow of the moon. And that's our uh, chromosphere. So... That's relatively thin. I mean, it's it's thicker than the photosphere, but still relatively thin. Okay, so you move out through that. And what's what's the composition of that? Like, what are we talking about when we're outside here? Is it still all the same stuff, just different densities? What's happening? Yeah, it's all the same stuff. So it's kind of just more sun. So more right. plasma, more charged particles. More sun well, stuff. Mostly electrons, protons, you know, a few kind of alpha nuclei, that kind of thing. But... Um, yeah, the density is going down, which is also why it's much less bright. So we're now down to something like one ten thousandth of the density of the photosphere. So, and I'm assuming that the the properties of of the different parts as we move our way out from the photosphere to the uh, chromosphere and then out to the corona, the properties of those are simply dependent on on the density. It's a bit like the atmosphere on Earth, that, that you've got different properties for different parts of the atmosphere just because things are getting thinner and that means that 
different things can happen in different ways. The chemistry can be a little bit different. The, um, you know, the, the, the climate and the weather can be a bit different. And it's the same around the sun, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the density is dropping basically as we move further and further away from the photosphere. Okay. So photosphere, chromosphere, and then corona. Corona. Yeah. So this is maybe something you have, you will have seen or heard of at least. The corona of the sun is the a much larger extended atmosphere of the sun. So it's got maybe we went we look well, we're not entirely sure, or at least we weren't until very recently, exactly how big the corona was. Right. Somewhere in the region of 10 to 20 times the radius of the sun. Wow. Like that's that's big. That's really going out. And and this is the one, like I've I've seen some pictures from eclipses. I haven't seen an actual eclipse myself. One day, one day, Emily. One of our Patreon subscribers will will pay for us to, to go to a go to a solar eclipse, um, but I've never seen it. But I've seen pictures, and when the the bright part of the sun is blocked out, I've never noticed the the chromosphere. But you do, you can't help but notice the um, the incredibly large corona. It just it just goes on a really long way. But how far did you say? Like up to how many radii? 10 to 20 times radius. So wow. normally in those pictures, you can easily see that it's more than double the size of the sun, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's some uh, lovely NASA imagery where you can kind of zoom out and you can see, uh, and I think this is a coronal mass ejection video that comes from about 2012 when the sun was really active. And you can kind of keep zooming out and you can see this kind of little explosion come from the surface of the sun all the way out through the many, many layers of the corona just taken with different observatories. That's, it's just amazing. It just goes on forever. So, and those those images show that it's kind of got, like there's a lot of structure there. This isn't this isn't just sort of, you know, a, um, a simple spherical blanket around the sun. Like there's a lot going on. There is a really lot. Yeah, the first thing that I mentioned just then without even rudely, not even explaining what I was talking about, was uh, these corrupt mass ejections. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to come back to that one. Yeah. So these are, these are ejections coming from the surface of the sun originally, but they're kind of like mini. No, they're not mini. They're really large explosions. Of <laughs> Nothing about the surface particles. of the sun is mini. You know, you see some of these images or the videos where they sort of superimpose. This is the size of the Earth next to it. And it's just terrifying. It's like an image from hell. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. So you get a, a big instability on the surface of the sun that can break. And then you get this uh, enormous extra sort of uh, ejection of charged particles that washes through the corona and then out into the kind of the final, I guess, what you might call layer of the sun, which is the solar wind. So what can we just before we before we leave that, what's going on there? I mean, you said a second ago it's sort of instabilities on the on the surface of the sun that then can make these sometimes small, sometimes enormous eruptions. But what what's going on? Like those some of those are really big coronal mass ejections. Like they're huge. So what can cause that? Well, the biggest thing you need to remember about the sun, apart from the fact it's very large and very bright and you shouldn't look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The we'll next, repeat next that again. thing Don't you look need to know after those uh, is that it's made of plasma, which means that you've got charged particles. Now, charged particles, if they move, generate a magnetic field. So they've got the, the actual movement of the charges itself is kind of an electric field, and then the, that induces a magnetic field. 
and everything to do with the sun is therefore part of a part of physics which is I'm not going to lie insanely hard part of physics which is called magnetohydrodynamics so this is combining together fluid dynamics magnetism and presumably an enormous amount of sort of thermodynamics in there as well three of the hardest bits of physics that I remember from my degree individually, let alone when you combine them together to say, what the hell's going on on the surface of a star? Can't be easy. It's definitely not easy. These are none of my specialty subjects when I was at university. Um, but then, of course, you've also got to add in a little bit of relativistic mechanics in there as well. Oh, yeah. Just to make it fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So magnetohydrodynamics is tricky. It's really hard. Um, but it's how we explain... Uh, effectively all the activity that we see on the sun. So sunspots, for example, are parts of the sun where the magnetic field is such that the it kind of the magnetic field of the sun is not like a lovely bar magnet like our own Earth's. It's got it's it's just an absolute mess, actually, because of all these charged particles moving around all over the place. Um, we've got differential rotation, which means that some parts of the sun rotate faster than the other parts. That's going to mess things up. That's kind of tie all the magnetic bits together, which like magnetic field lines don't like that. No. They'll no, rebel they, after a they while. They bend and they cross and they break and they poke out of the sun at all sorts of weird and wonderful angles. So um, sunspots are an example of where the magnetic field is strong enough that you actually get a cooler region in the um the part of the sun that is the dark spot now it's not much cooler than the rest of the photosphere but it's enough that it looks like it's very dark compared to the rest of the bright photosphere just a little bit cooler not not so much that it would make it a nice place to visit but comparatively a bit cooler so what's when we're talking about these big eruptions is that is that an area where these magnetic field lines have just gone no this is just getting way too unstable and energetic. We've got to get out of here somewhere, somehow. And they yeah. just, so sometimes they just got the, to go. In the surface, you can get these what we call prominences, which are these big loops that can kind of pull out of the photosphere and go in a massive, massive arc. Now, these arcs can be several times the size of Earth, just one of these loops poking out of the sun. And that's a magnetic field line. And charged particles love to follow magnetic field lines. That's what they do. So it's a it's a magnetic field, but it's taking some of the, the sun's stuff with it on this little ride, which is kind of fun and and big and energetic. But how do they how does that then turn into a we go, we're getting out of here. This isn't this is a, a mass ejection. We're gone. So many prominences are kind of quite, I guess, quiet, you might say, where the, the plasma just flows up off the surface of the sun, follows the loop and goes back down again into the surface. Fine. But sometimes these magnetic fields get very unstable and they break. So the magnetic field line's broken, which means you've now got this kind of plasma in a place that almost shouldn't be, in a sense, it should be on the surface of the sun, but it's now kind of pulled itself off in this magnetic field loop. Uh, it can break, and that then causes a huge eruption off the surface. And and these can be big. Sometimes they're really big, like the video you were talking about, which we'll put some images of and uh, and a link to in the show notes. But some are just, just frighteningly large, you know, when you consider how big the sun actually is. And then you look at this, this lick of flame coming off the surface of this thing and stretching out into space. That's terrifying. Like do they how and and do that just does that just keep going 
off it keeps going yeah it's got enough velocity now for those charged particles to leave the surface of the sun to leave the atmosphere of the sun and to go all the way out into the rest of the solar system and they are dangerous i mean let's not kid ourselves the sun is <laughs> dangerous and because i mean let's face it we're going around the sun i don't know if you know this emily but we're you know we're quite nearby and if one of those came in our direction, I'm guessing that that wouldn't be great. It wouldn't be great. Um, so, well, let's have a look at the solar wind that that sort of that bit that's going to carry these charged particles okay. first, because that's the sort of medium through which these these um, ejections are going to happen. So, we mentioned we got up to the surface of the corona, right? Yeah. Now, the the boundary of between the corona, which is the edge of the sun's atmosphere. Um, is actually got a very special name. It's called the Alphans Critical Surface. Presumably after someone Alphans who, yeah, who discovered yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he was very, um, very prolific in understanding plasmas, magnetic fields, plasma physicists, fusion physicists talk about him all the time as well. So Right, and quite critical by the sound of it. Well, the surface is critical. Right, okay. <laughs> Okay, it's not. not it's critical time. because it's the edge. It's I guess it's another way you could say this is the edge of the sun. It's the edge of the atmosphere of the sun. Okay, uh, and the reason why you can have an edge of the sun when you talk talking about this kind of just nebulous sort of plasma thing uh, is because this is the area, the region where gravity and the magnetic fields can no longer hold on to those charged particles that rest of the atmosphere. So that's the breaking point, if you like. Okay, so that's our critical surface. So this alpha critical surface defines then from corona to solar wind. So corona is held on to the sun, solar wind is, we're leaving, we're off. The charged particles are off. So the corona is still, it's still bound, even if it if it seems to be very sort of wafty and, and streaky and in, in all the images and stuff, it's still defined as bound. It's not going anywhere. This is still the outer outer levels of the sun's atmosphere, if you like. But you get beyond that and you're off. You're off into space. Yeah. So if you give a charged particle enough velocity, just like anything, if you have enough velocity on the surface of the Earth and you jump, then you will leave the surface of the Earth. That's called the escape velocity of Earth. And it's the same for the sun. If you give your charged particles enough energy, they will leave the corona and that will go streaming off out into the rest of the solar system. Cool. And that's solar wind. Yeah. And that, I guess, doesn't really have a boundary in a sense. It's just kind of the, the constant flow of charged particles off the surface of the sun. It's um, it's going on forever, I mean, in a sense, because it's as far as those charged particles can go, maybe until the, the heliopause. In, and then you kind of start to define that's the edge of the sun's kind of magnetic influence on the rest of the galaxy. Yeah, and that's way out there, right? That's way beyond, like, the planets and stuff. So by that point, it's a bit of a moot question as to whether or not, whether or not you've truly let, like, that's gone. You're out there. You're in space now. Yeah, so some of the best solar physicists that I've met, um, um, one of them was Lucy Green, actually, and she was talking about basically on Earth here, we do live inside the atmosphere of the sun. It's not the atmosphere as we just defined it because we're, we actually live in the solar wind. But nonetheless, you know, this is a major influencer on the space around us. So it's not just that we're influenced by the sun's gravity, although we definitely are. I mean, we're in orbit around it. But in that sense, like I'm, I'm thinking about the, the comparison to, say, the moon going around the Earth. The moon's not going through the Earth's atmosphere. 
the moon's not really affected much at all by the Earth's magnetic field, I guess. So the moon is going around the Earth just, just because of gravity. But the same's not true of the Earth going around the sun, that we have the gravity and that's causing the orbit and so on. But we're still very much influenced by the solar wind. We're, we're, in, we're within the sun in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And, then, you know, it's significant. It's something like one and a half million tonnes of sun per second are being ejected out into the solar wind. That's a lot. That's a lot of sun. I mean, I know the sun's big, but that's, that's a lot of sun. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to worry in the sense of, you know, in terms of the sun, it's, it's only lost... I think it was 0.01% of its mass over its whole life through its solar Like it's not going to dry up anytime soon. We don't have to worry about that. But it's still a lot. That, I guess the point is it can have a big impact. Yeah, so the solar wind would have a very profound effect on us. In fact, it would be very dangerous for us here on Earth if we didn't have the protection of our own magnetic field. Right. And why is, why is that? I mean, what's, what's the danger? Well, charged particles moving very quickly are not great for kind of living right. organisms. You don't, you don't want that raining down upon you all the time. We get a lot of energy and light and heat from the sun as it is, but our magnetic field protects us from all the other stuff. Yeah, so broadly, um, our magnetic field on Earth kind of, I guess it almost creates a little bubble around us where the majority of the solar wind gets deflected uh, away from the Earth. There is a little bit that does come down into the atmosphere because it's funneled in by the Earth's own magnetic poles. And uh, the beautiful, I guess, result of that is, of course, our aurora that we get in the northern and southern hemispheres. Right, yes, yeah, the northern lights and the southern lights. That's, that's those charged particles funneling their way down through the magnetic fields to, towards the poles. Why, what makes them glow? What makes them light up? So they basically start bashing into particles in the atmosphere, mostly nitrogen and oxygen. And when they sort of bash into them, they give them lots of energy to get rid of that energy. Those molecules then release light. So not only protecting us from all of that really scary stuff coming from the sun, but the magnetic field also gives us a really nice light show. And I'm assuming that means, I'm showing my ignorance here, I'm assuming that means that the aurora, the, the northern and southern lights, um, they are much brighter and more interesting when the sun is going a bit nuts. Like yeah, when there's a exactly. lot of activity on the sun, we see that activity in the northern and southern lights. Yeah. So if you ever know, if you ever want to travel to some of these lovely destinations and see the northern or southern lights, then uh, you'll see that there's aurora forecasts. And these come from basically just watching the sun. Has it had any kind of little bursts of... Uh, charged particles and then three or four days later those charged particles will arrive at earth yeah i've signed up for one of those alerts here in the uk and every once in a while i'll get a there's an amber alert or a you know a, a, a red alert or something like that um but it's always so you know if you live up in scotland you'll see it fantastic i don't i don't live in scotland i've yet to see have you ever seen the the aurora have you ever... I, um, i'm a strange one i've seen the southern lights but not the northern lights well, it's not so strange given the amount of time you've spent in New Zealand. That does kind of make sense. But did you did you actually have to travel to go and see it or did it just sort of, you know, you walked outside one day and went, oh, look. look at that. Uh, so That's I was cool. observing at the time. Actually, it's kind of unusual because um, in New Zealand, it's quite tricky to see the Southern Lights, much harder than it is to, say, see them from the Northern Hemisphere. Right. Why is that? Because you're quite, quite far south. 
Yeah, well, they tend to be, well, they're not that far south as first, the first problem. So where I'm observing, we're only kind of minus 40-something degrees south, which is, you know, in York, we're, we're plus 50-something degrees, 56 degrees north. So we're, we're not as far south as people tend to live north, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the magnetic south pole is quite far away. So it depends on your distance. It's, that's, of course, the distance to the geographic South Pole. You've got to worry about where the magnetic South Pole is. Uh, and then there's just an effect where they seem to, they tend to be fainter, the, the Southern Lights. Yeah. I always think with New Zealand, it's it's further south than it. And, of course, the, the very bottom of New Zealand is a very long way south. Um, but uh, but New Zealand's quite long. And you can be in parts of New Zealand which aren't terribly far south at all. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, solar wind. We were talking about the solar wind and we were talking a little bit about, can we just get back to the danger part? Because that's, you know, the, the magnetic field is saving us at the moment from just common or garden variety solar wind, and that's fine. And without that, we'd be in trouble without the, the magnetic field. But that image of the really big, scary, sort of hellish solar flare, you know, the really big coronal mass, mass ejection, if one of those was pointed in our direction and we were just, you know, in the path of that, would like would, would our magnetic field be able to cope with that? What kind of problems would we see there? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing you've got to worry about is all the things that aren't protected as much by our own magnetic field. So basically all the things uh, that are above the atmosphere. So that's also, there's partly the magnetic field, but it's also the atmosphere itself which is shielding us from the worst of these cosmic uh, rays and the solar wind. So anything that's above, which includes the International Space Station, it includes the vast majority of all our satellites. These are much more vulnerable. Communication satellites, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of them up there, last count. It was quite a few. Yeah, so the first thing that we need to worry about, of course, is our astronauts in space, because they are not particularly well shielded in the International Space Station. So, and there are protocols, you know, the, the astronauts are trained on, okay, there's been a big coronal mass ejection. There's going to be all these charged particles arriving in, you know, T minus two days. They will get everyone down off the International Space Station if it's really dangerous. Right. Like not actually just into the big padded room or something. They actually, no, nope, we're coming to get you. You're coming home. And no. Well, the problem is you'd need to have quite a lot of lead to stop <laughs> these charged particles. Yeah. Fair enough. So I'm guessing that everything that is up there in orbit, like, has been designed for normal, normal uh, solar wind environment. You know, they're, they're being bombarded by charged particles all the time, but they've been designed for that. But they haven't been designed for these massive, massive influxes of of charged stuff. So every once in a while, yeah, yeah. So if if one of these big ones did come along, would it take out all of the all of the communication satellites? Like very easily. Um, so and. Sort of, I guess, not quite living memory, but in sort of slightly more than living memory. Let's go a few generations ago. I think it was in the 1880s. There was um, an event called the Carrington event, which is probably the most famous, very large sort of solar storm that's impacted humanity. Because, you know, before we had electricity, before we had Wi-Fi and 5G and whatever. And satellites and all of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't anything electromagnetic to interfere with. So humans for a very long time were fairly oblivious to the fact that these solar storms could come along. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. It's only in the last, what, maximum 100 years 
that we would even conceive of being inconvenienced by the sun's activity. But now it would be a very big deal indeed. We've kind of made ourselves a little bit at the at the mercy of the whims of the sun now. Yeah, boring. well, you think about the 1880s, you know, we didn't have a lot. We had telegraph wires, I think. That yeah. was like the main thing. But um, at the time, uh, the reports were uh, from this enormous solar solar storm that uh, the operators of the telegraph wires would unplug their um, sort of equipment from the wire itself, but they could still communicate along the wire because there was enough electricity running along the, the telegraph wires just from the solar storm itself. Wow, a very yeah. early form of solar power. That's cool. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, let's kind of hope that that doesn't happen anytime soon. I mean, do these things happen often? Should we be worried? Well, sort of. I mean, so I guess, and then coming to more living memory, there was a sort of a, a, a medium, small to medium electrical sort of discharge from the sun that came, oh, I think it was in the 1980s. And it was Canada who took the brunt of this one. Right. And that took out loads of power stations in Canada. Because, wow, so again, it's, it's enough to do that. That's, yeah, too much stuff going through the system. Yeah. That's amazing. Kind of kind of makes you realise just how small and, and pathetically insignificant we are, really, isn't it? Just This could happen. This could happen anytime. Do you get... I know we're going way off topic on this one, but but do we get much of a warning of that kind of thing? Well, if we, we do now because we observe the sun very closely. We're, we've got loads of telescopes pointed at the sun, some on Earth, some uh, in sort of like Soho and sort of trailing Earth orbits, um, SDO. There's lots of, yeah, we're, we're watching the sun very closely, partially for these reasons, right? You'd want to know. Um, and so you do get a warning in the sense it takes time for those charged particles to travel between the sun and us. So light only takes eight minutes because it goes at the speed of light. Yeah, yeah, hence the name. But uh, charged particles take, yeah, a couple of days. I think it's about three days on average. So we've got some time. What we could do about it, I don't really know. Everyone take cover? Uh, unplug? Yeah, hard to know, hard to know. Well, look, let's get back onto the topic du jour, which is, which is not coronal mass ejections. It's not the end of the world as we know it. It's that a very small but very cool spacecraft has done something really interesting, which is, is it's actually gone into the corona and, and hung out there for a while for the very first time. So, Emily, talk us through this one. What's what's the probe doing and what have we found? Well, I think so far I've kind of presented most of the information as kind of just facts that we know about the sun, right? Sure. It's, these are the different layers. These are the bits. Da, da, da. Okay, we don't quite know exactly where the edge of the corona is, but Parker's about to tell us where that is, um, which is great. What I haven't really gone into is actually how much we don't know about all this stuff. And I want to share with you what I think is probably one of the most astonishing things in astrophysics, that we don't really know why it happens. Do tell. I mean, okay, we've got some other big contenders here. We've got, you know, we've got dark energy. We've got black holes. We've got dark matter. But I think this is up there with you. There are some big things. Right. There's some big stuff we don't know. So you're putting this up there with we don't know what a large quantity of the energy and matter in the universe is. That's, that's pretty big. Uh, not terribly certain about what goes on inside black holes, which is where physics breaks down. So that's pretty big. And you're putting this up there. So I want to know what's going on. 
Wow. So we mentioned the corona, this extended atmosphere of the sun. I didn't deliberately didn't just, you know, rattle off the temperature of this corona. Right. Remember the surface of the sun, there's something like 5,700 Kelvin. Yeah, give or take. The corona is more than a million Kelvin. Wait, hang what? How, that can't, no. Look, the sun, we all know this, Emily. The sun is the hot bit, right? That's the really hot bit. And then the further away you get from the sun, it's got to be the colder you get. Like, that, it, nothing else makes sense. How can the corona, which goes on for ages, be like a million kelvin? That doesn't make any sense. It, it makes almost no sense when you just sort of think, yeah, you should, you're right. You should, your temperature should drop off as you go further and further away from yeah. the sun. But instead, it gets something like 300 times hotter. Uh, how? How does that work? It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And the how is exactly the point. We don't really know. Wow. So there's like, you're telling me we literally don't know. We've measured it and we know that it's true. We just don't know why. Yeah. And it, this is the, this is the sun. It's, it's right there. Yeah, like, <laughs> you can't, there's, there's no others to go and measure. The sun's it. Like if we don't know about that one, what are we supposed to do? I guess that's the point, isn't it? Of Parker. That's why Parker's in there to try to give us one some of the sense big reasons, of yeah. what's going on in here. Yeah, I mean, we do have some vague ideas about, you know, that come from this magnetohydrodynamics, things like reconnection of magnetic field lines, which might sort of channel um, kind of extra energy into these sort of particles that are part of the corona, or even these alpha waves, which are kind of like little waves of these charged particles moving around on the magnetic field lines, which might kind of inject some energy into the corona. But, I mean, the bottom line is we don't really know. That's absolutely nuts. That absolutely blows my mind. So, I mean, I do know, obviously, that you can have very, very high temperatures in a very low-density medium, and both of those things can be true, and that means that you don't actually have enormous amounts of energy. Like, we tend to think that really high temperature means that anything that goes in, like, there's nothing can survive at a million degrees Kelvin, right? That's ridiculous. And yet, how can a probe go in there and hang out in there at a million degrees? And it's because, presumably, the corona is really dispersed. Like, the density's very, very low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's very, very uh, rarefied, which means that if you think about each individual particle, now what we define as temperature is kind of just basically directly related to how fast the particles are moving, right? Yeah. And they can move quite fast because there's just not that many of them. You don't need a lot of energy to, to make them move fast. Right. It's still kind of surprising, though. <laughs> like a million seems a lot. So this probe, while it's not kind of, it's, it's not like it's just done a deep dive through the photosphere into, you know, the part of the sun that we see in those pictures. Um, but I'm guessing it really had to be designed quite carefully to be able to cope with some pretty extreme environments. Yeah, and this is one of the brilliant, um, I'm sure you've been able to look at some of the first images that have come from Parker from uh, earlier this year. And some of those images show it moving into the corona and seeing all the particles just whooshing past. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, there was the... There was a video that they put together from the from the images, and you see, yeah, it really does look like it's just being blasted 
by high energy particles. But there was one other part of that video that I thought was really, really cool. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm going to talk about? Oh, go on. It's the it's that as you're moving through, you can see all these like you know whizzing what look like whizzing particles coming past, like these streaks. But then you can kind of see the stars in the background. And at one point, the Milky Way makes its way across the image. It's like, oh, wow. Like, it just it just doesn't seem possible. It's the most magical moment. Yeah, very cool. I'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes. But what an amazing thing. And it looks like such a terrifying environment. You know, it's like something from a sci-fi movie. It doesn't look real. So let's come back to Parker then. Let's, yeah. let's, let's focus on Parker because Parker's done some amazing things and it's fairly short lifetime so far right it's it's only been up for a little while so parker is part of nasa's broader living with a star project right which which we do like that's not new but this is nasa paying paying attention living with a star wouldn't have been my choice of name it sounds like a terrible disease to be honest name yes name by committee there i think but okay let's go with it that's fine it is, um, some fun facts, it's the first NASA spacecraft to be named after a living person. Okay. Who was or is, obviously, Parker? Eugene Newman Parker is a solar um, sort of theorist looking at, the indeed, the solar corona and how some of this magnetohydrodynamics, how it all works. Uh, in 1958, he published, along with some other people, um, some first ideas about how actually all this kind of corona comes together and some ideas about why the temperature, for example, might be this stupidly high in the corona. That's cool. So Parker's still kicking, still around, and gets to watch the satellite, the spacecraft that's named after him, because it's not a, not a satellite, it's a spacecraft, named after him going and doing its thing. That's never happened before. Not for a NASA probe, no. Very cool. That's cool. That's very cool. Go, Parker. So Parker launched in August 2018. Here's another cool thing. It only took until October 2018 for it to become the closest artificial object that we'd sent to the sun. Wow. (laughs) Okay, that says two things. One is it was really moving. And two, we haven't actually gone that close before. (laughs) We've been to Mercury, right? Yeah. We, we've sent things to Mercury. And so presumably that's how long it took for it to get past Mercury. Yeah, although it's on its first flyby. Remember that we don't just kind of point at the sun, launch, boom, and then fall go. in. No, that's not the plan. It's going to be going around a few times, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So lots of flybys of sort of Venus, the Earth, et cetera, to, to use all those gravitational energy to do this. But, yeah, so if, you, if you're looking for scale, Mercury is at about 40% the distance of the sun as the earth is right which puts it at 83 solar radii and how far did you say the corona extends uh 10 to 20 10 to 20 okay so mercury's still a long way outside of that but it also gives you a sense of of just how big that corona is like it it goes maybe maybe a quarter of the way out to the first planet that's a lot yeah. And this is where we actually come to, I guess, um, today's news story, which has been coming out, which is that it was in April this year. So April the 28th, to be specific, 2021. It was the, on this date that Parker actually crossed the Alphan critical surface and entered the corona for the first time. So back in, in April. 
yeah. So it took a while to download the data and kind of figure it all out. So I do love our habit on this on this podcast of like totally burying the lead. Like it's only taken us the best part of 40 minutes to actually get to what the story is. But that's okay. That's fine. We've had a really good chat along the way. So in April, so you, you said it was launched in 2018. Yep. And by October 2018, it was the closest thing we'd ever sent towards the sun. But it's taken since then for it to actually wing its way around a few times and plunge finally over that barrier into we are now in the corona. Exactly. And so we can now say that we know that this alpha and critical surface is at 18.8 solar radii away from the sun. Right. So pretty close to that 20. And would that be would that be fairly uniform or would that shift around a lot or do we just not know? Well, this is one of the interesting findings is actually it's not sort of a beautiful, nice, smooth sphere. And this is, you know, this is the extra surface of the sun. Yeah. Actually, it's this really wrinkled sort of surface. It's very so actually Parker's been dipping in and out of it since then. Right. Well, I mean, I guess that kind of kind of makes sense when you think about the images that you do see of the corona, you know, during an eclipse, you know, it's not a big sphere around the sun. It's it's like got fingers out in all sorts of directions and it looks really complicated. So it doesn't really surprise me that that surface, the critical surface, would be similarly kind of all over the place. Yeah, so it's really exciting to find that. Um, yeah, and so this is actually adding sort of one more string in, I think, Parker's bow, because there's already been some wonderful discoveries that have come out, and it's the spacecraft's kind of, what, three and a bit years? Uh, we've had, uh, first of all, as it was working its way through the solar wind towards the corona, we found some, we had some really nice measurements of alpha waves as it went through. Um, and so we know that they do exist in this in the solar wind. So that wasn't sure before. Well, it was. We thought they probably did, but at least we now know that they're probably very strongly linked to what's causing this corona to be intensely hot. So there, there's something to do with there. Okay, so it's got it's got that one. It's done that one well. We also found that these um, switchbacks happen in the solar wind. Now, switchback is when you're kind of the solar wind's kind of gushing out from the sun, but then just for a little bit, it pauses, goes backwards for a little while, and then goes back towards why, outwards why again. Would it, why would it do that? Well, it's just magnetic fields. <laughs> Who even knows? Who even knows what magnetic fields are doing? They're just ridiculous. Yeah, these little these little zigzags. So that was that was quite exciting. Um, and then it just even earlier this year, it also found well, you've got these little switchbacks. They're happening much more often than originally predicted. And what Parker was able to do was trace them back. So imagine tracing that back through the solar wind, back through the corona, all the way back to the surface of the sun and link them to these kind of funnel sort of shapes of energy released from the sun. Wow. So it's able to, it's, it's not only been able to say these things are happening and we can we can see them, we can measure them. It's actually tracing their sort of their origins and their dynamics that's so cool yeah so you know it's doing really well yeah that's not bad how long is the is the mission supposed to supposed to last um i think it's a while i've got the next uh, sort of i guess the the biggest thing that people are looking forward to in a sense will be the closest approach right so this is due to happen in 2025 
uh, and we're hoping that Parker will be able to get down to 8.9 solar radii. Wow. So it's it's been out around the sort of 18 mark? Is that That's that's where we've yeah. been. It's going to get like twice as, as close in, like, like half that distance. Wow. That's really close. That's really close. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of scary. Could that be the end of Parker as we know it, or are we pretty confident it's going to be okay? I think it should be okay, but you know, I'm not I'm not an engineer, so I'm sure that I've anticipated that it will get you know kind of a bit toasty. Yeah, that is amazing though. What an amazing mission that we've never been this close before, and now we're really going to push it and just dive down, not quite into the sun you know, over the over the photosphere as such, but really getting in nice and close to almost be able to reach out and touch it. That's so cool. And it's great that we can start to well, at least kind of put together ideas about some of these embarrassing questions that we didn't know the answer to about the sun. You know, where does the atmosphere of the sun end? Mm, not we really. We don't know. <laughs> What's why, going on in there? We don't why know. is the corona so hot? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> Tell you what, how about we make a spacecraft? Shall we do that? Okay, let's go. Let's go. So I think with all this like, kind of new information about the sun, it's obviously really, really exciting to learn the physics. We use the sun as our own test bed for understanding basically every other star that exists out there in the universe because it's the one we can send space probes into touch. At least for now, it's the only one we've got, yeah. So it's very important for, for stellar physics as well as uh, for solar physics. Of course, we want to understand all the activity on the sun because we do have a vested interest, being that it is kind of potentially quite disruptive, if not very dangerous to life on Earth. Yeah, it's a vested interest in the, in the truest sense of the word, yeah. So I think it's, it's very exciting that we're able to do this. And I thought maybe I'll just leave you with this quote. And I, I take no responsibility for writing this quote. <laughs> it was written by um, a NASA news journalist called Mara Johnson Grove. This has been one major step for Parker Solar Probe and one giant leap for solar science. Well, thank you, Emily, for a... Uh at times enlightening and at times quite scary view of what we know about the sun. I'm still blown away that we have no idea why the corona is like a million degrees. That seems like the sort of thing that should be fairly quickly sorted out by the astronomers of the world. So I'm glad for your sake, for your profession's sake, that we've actually got the Parker Space Probe up there clearing that up for us. I think that'll that'll help. That'll help you lot get your story together. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, listen, you out there in listener land, if you have anything that you want to, to throw our way for the next round of Syzygy coming up in 2022, I can't believe I'm actually saying this. How is it possible that we're at the end of 2021? To me, it doesn't even feel like 2020. Anyway, 2022, if you want to get in touch with us and say, you should really do a story about this, or I've got a question, maybe we'll base a, an episode around that, or what's going on? with this thing in the world of astronomy, then you can get in touch with this in a whole bunch of ways. Emily, name one. So if you can get us up on Twitter. Now, Twitter is a great place if you want to catch us at SyzygyPod. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y pod. But you're also going to need it for the JWST launch as you are going to need all of the social media and all of the internet because 
it is my plan on Christmas Eve to be sitting in my Christmas themed pajamas, eating huge amounts of food, drinking lots of hot chocolate and watching James Webb fly. I think it's got to be done. I think the, all of the social medias just fired up. This, this is one of the best things about social media, right? Social media is full of all sorts of nonsense, but what it does well is this kind of very exciting, and let's face it, very nerd-centric excitement about something like JWST launching. So tune in. It's going to be great fun. Watch this thing take off and keep our collective fingers and toes crossed for a, for a successful launch. So at least we know what Emily and I are going to be doing on the 24th. And uh, let's just hope for no more delays. I don't want any more delays. We need this one. So on Twitter, on Twitter, that's how you can find us. You can also find us on the Instagrams, at SyzygyPod, same name. Uh, and we're on the Facebooks, if you're still doing the Facebook thing. Um, just search for us. Search for the Syzygy Podcast on Facebook and you'll find us. Um, we also have a website, syzygy.fm, where you can find all of our past shows, all of the images that we've put up, the cool images, all of the links to all of the interesting stories that we've covered over the last several years of this podcast, as well as a contact page for you just to get on there and say hi and, uh, and send us a little message and wish us happy Christmas. Speaking of wishing us happy Christmas, Emily, it's been a really good one. I'm looking forward to 2022. It's been a weird couple of years, I know, but I think 2022 is going to be big. I think 2022 has got a lot of promise. I think there are going to be big, exciting things happening in 2022. What do you reckon? Science is just going to rain down on us from the universe. Yeah, I mean, in a good way, though, not in... Not in a terrifying kind of end of the world no, kind of way. Not in a coronal mass ejection kind of way. We don't need any of that. We don't need that kind of thing. We need the good, positive, yeah, the science coming down upon us from the universe. So let's look forward to that. Emily, I'll see you in 2022. Have a great Christmas. Everyone out there in listener land, we'll catch you in the new year. Bye, everybody. See you later.